This is the Investors Unite podcast, a look at government overreach and secrecy and its impact on American taxpayers, public policy, and law. For years, the federal government has tried to hide its misuse of authority with regard to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Investors Unite podcast helps you untangle the facts. The latest installment begins now. Hi, this is Tim Pagliera, Executive Director of Investors Unite. The podcast you're about to hear is an interview I had with New York University law professor Richard Epstein. Shortly after we taped this interview, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the government acted within its power under the law to enact the net worth sweep. But the appeals court also ruled that U.S. District Court Judge Royce Lambert needed to reconsider portions of the case, indicating that some Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac investors could pursue monetary or takings damages. We'll focus on the decision in an upcoming se- segment. Now, for our, no- for our inaugural podcast, Professor Epstein joins me to discuss efforts to unseal government documents related to the net worth sweep and the likelihood that more documents come to light. Welcome to the first edition of the Investors Unite podcast, which focuses on the government's misapplication of law and disregard of shareholder rights in the course of the government's conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is now in its ninth year. As a result of the net worth sweep of the company's revenues that began in 2012, the United States Treasury has now raked in $63 billion more than the initial cash contribution of $187.5 billion provided to Fannie and Freddie during the financial crisis of 2008. The sweep prompted court action by several groups of shareholders. The government has tried to hamper the administration of justice by withholding thousands of documents. Today, we will focus on the most recent development in the battle to get the government to unseal documents that have had a direct bearing on whether the net worth sweep amounted to an illegal taking of property without compensation. On January 30, 2017, the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit handed down a decision in the Fairhome Funds lawsuit. The decision involved just 58 documents that are part of a protracted struggle over discovery. This morning, we have Professor Richard Epstein, a frequent Investors Unite guest and Forbes commentator on our program. He believes that this court case is an important win for shareholders. So I want to give Professor Epstein um, an opportunity to um, just say a few words, and then I've got a series of questions and that we'll go through and um, Hopefully, we'll learn a little bit more about this case and where we are today. Professor Epstein, good morning. Well, it's very nice to be here. Um, but I wanted to say at the outset is, yes, when you manage to get 50 out of 58 documents uh, uh, through an appellate process, you're batting more than 500, and so you've won. Um, I've read that decision fairly closely, as well as the decision written below by Judge Sweeney. I actually thought that when she decided that all of the documents should have been released, that she had the better of the case. 
but the basic point here, I think, is one which will stand the investors in pretty good stead going forward, assuming the case continues to go on these rather odd substantive theories uh, that have been cast thus far by the government. The basic argument is, first, that anybody who has documents which are relevant to a particular dispute, whether or not admissible, is ordinarily required to turn them over to the other side as part of the discovery process. That obligation attaches to the government like everybody else. Uh, to this, there is then a kind of privilege which attaches to the government for certain kinds of sensitive documents so enmeshed in the deliberative process that their release will compromise the way in which the government starts to operate. And so the question is whether or not you can make this particular deliberative process claim here. And Judge Sweeney went through all of the relevant factors, uh, namely such questions as, are the information here pertinent? Are there some alternative supply that could be available so you don't need these particular documents? Will you completely still conversation on the other side if they're granted? And she concluded that for documents done many years ago, uh, prepared for but not by the very high officials in question, you ought to give them all out. And the standard of review on matters like this is one which talks about an abuse of discretion. And generally, I think the correct answer is if a trial judge identifies the right factors and puts them in the right places in the analysis and gives a weight to them, which is somewhat different from that which an appellate court might give, under an abuse of discretion standard, the trial judge standard ought to, or decision ought to hold. Uh, what happened is in the court above, uh, the uh, Federal Circuit said, well, you know, some of these things are really important to deliberation, so we're going to say it was an abuse of discretion. The problem about that is every one of these documents is in some sense relevant to deliberation, uh, and that would convert the privilege into an absolute one, and they never explained why it was that her judgment was wrong. When you start looking at the documents, what they do is they confirm the pattern of behavior, uh, which has been consistent. Uh, the government here was supposed to have a situation in which Treasury was adverse, stress the word adverse, uh, to FHFA. Uh, the basic logic being is that FHFA represents the shareholders, the Treasury represents the government, and when they bargain, the government is supposed to take care of the taxpayers, but they're supposed to meet resistance from the other side. If it turns out that the trustee was supposed to be adverse to the government is now in cahoots with the government. The entire scheme of conservatorship is blown up. And if you look at these documents, all they talk about is how both sides believe that they had to protect the taxpayer's interest, which is a per se admission, in my judgment, of a breach of fiduciary duty uh, by FHFA. And so that being the type of situation, I should think both in the government suit that's taking place before Judge Sweeney and in the other lawsuit taking place in the district court, uh, there should be a favorable judgment which is given to the shareholders to undo the situation that was created by the net worth sweep of August 17, 2012. If the net worth sweep is invalidated um, and you have these preferred shares that have been out there and they're non-cumulative preferred, does that have any impact on a potential damage model of recovery for those investors? That's a great question to ask. And let me see if I could put it to you the following way. First of all, as a simple definitional matter, when you're talking about a non-cumulative dividend, it means that if the government or if the underlying resources are not available to pay that dividend in that period, it doesn't carry over to the next period. It's just lost. And so in this particular situation, what we do is we have this odd position where there are now about eight or nine years in which the dividend has not been paid, and somebody could say, well, therefore, it ought to be lost. I think that's a mistake in this particular case, and let me explain to you why. 
if you're talking about a restitution model that is trying to undo the situation um, uh, that was created by the net worth sweep and put people back into the position that they were if things had been done correctly, what you'd have to do is to look at each of these particular years and ask whether or not there were sufficient resources in the Treasury to make the dividend that was available on this non-cumulative basis. And if that dividend was, in fact, covered by the available funds, then the correct measure of damage is, if you're sort of trying to get back to where you should have been, is to put all of those dividends back in place and then to give interest for the late fee with respect to them. And since it seems pretty clear that at every material time there were sufficient assets in Fannie and Freddie to pay these kinds of junior preferred uh, dividends, it seems to me that the correct analysis is uh, that they get them paid. Otherwise, what happens is the government manages to profit by its own wrong. That is, by refusing to pay the non-cumulative dividend when it's due, they are now entitled never to pay it. That cannot be right. So I think the correct answer is, if you put this transaction back to the way in which it should have gone, uh, then in effect the, quite si the correct situation, all the dividends get paid, and by virtue of the fact that they're late payments, there is now going to be interest tacked on to that. And that would put the damaged party back in the position that they would have been in had the net worth sweep um, never, never occurred. taken place. That's and that's the correct measure under a restitution theory. There is an alternative theory, the takings theory, um, which is being produced before Judge Sweeney, which says what we have to do is to figure out what the value of these things are, um, and then when you take it, uh, the government owns everything, but they have to pay you for the fair market value of everything that was taken away. And, of course, one of the things that they're taking away is your right to get these non-cumulative dividends. Uh, so that number is probably going to be a fairly substantial number as well. Uh, what happens is future mismanagement, if any, of the various assets under trust by FHFA is important in the breach of fiduciary duty case. It's not important in the takings case because the value of the claim is fixed at the amount of confiscation taking place uh, with, the third, with the net worth sweep of August uh, 2012, and then you just have to add interest to that. Sooner or later, somebody's going to have to figure out which of these two theories is going to dominate, given the fact that they're both correct. And my own view on that is, generally speaking, when somebody is engaged in systematically wrongful conduct, which the government has been, uh, the presumption ought to be that it's the innocent party that gets to choose the figure which gives the largest net recovery. Here's a, another question, Professor, that I get frequently, and actually it, it's something I think about myself. But, you know, we, we just talked about the latest development that requires just a handful of documents. So while the government's turned over 48,000 documents during discovery, there were only 58 of these documents that were looked at in camera, and Judge Sweeney applied the standards, and the standards were reviewed. There's still 11,000 documents mm -hmm. that the government has privileged. So while Judge Sweeney's ruling has been largely upheld, how do you think the process will go, and what bearing will this have on the next 11,000 documents? So this could take... This could take the rest of our lives. Well, I don't think it will take that long. I think the basic argument it is that Judge Sweeney has seen all of the documents for which the privilege has been accepted and rejected. She has some sense as to what the parameters are. And I think what she will do is sort of 
uh, take that as a template against which you'll look at these other documents and decide whether or not these things ought to be released. Um, since she knows what they look like and I don't know what they look like, she's going to be in a much better position to do that than anybody else. But I would think that it would be much more likely for her to expedite the process given the fact that she's gotten her marching orders from above. So I don't think it will take as long as it has taken thus far. Uh, this, of course, requires the government to cooperate in some sense, and one of the things that we always note in these cases is that the government always finds ways to slow the trains down because it's not in its interest to speed them up. At least that's the way in which they argued the case thus far. And this becomes now doubly uncertain because we don't know the effect that the release on these documents is going to have on the situation in the Fairholme case uh, in the Perry case, rather, in the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeal, and we don't know what the effect is going to be on the Trump Treasury Department. So there's a lot more uncertainty out of this thing, but I would assume that with the change of administration, there has to be an increased odds that there'll be a political solution to this particular problem, which will recognize the strength of the Investor Unite and other shareholder claims. Got one more final question for you, um, and, and the focus of this question is on the three-judge appeals panel. And mm -hmm. they've taken over nine months now as they've been mulling over um, the decision and how they're going to rule. Handicap for us, if you will, um, what you believe the probability of outcome is. This is um, a very hard thing. It's actually they argued this case on April 15th, and it's now 10 months, as you said. What was even odder is in the interim, they put forward a set of questions dealing with jurisdictional issues, which really didn't have much merit to it one way or another. The government then got another chance to introduce some exotic and I think incorrect arguments. Uh, it's going on a very long time. So what are the situations that you think about? One is you could say, well, they're simply going to affirm Judge Lambert. Well, that's what they were going to do. I think they would have been able to do that a long time ago. And so my guess is that's not what the situation is likely to be. So I do think, in effect, there's going to be some deviation from it. Well, then the question is, what do you do? And there are two situations. One of them is you could argue that this is a kind of a complicated melange case, breach of fiduciary duty, some regulatory takings elements in there, lots of facts and circumstances to be taken into account. And what they could say is, you know what, Judge Lambert, you decided this case without the benefit of discovery and oral argument by the two parties. We now want you to have discovery on these to figure out whether or not you think that this particular case is going to be correct. And then what they might also do is say, well, we think your analysis is right or wrong on the following question. The one point I think on which Judge Lambeth was clearly wrong is when he said that the option to defer payments if you're willing to do 12% interest, the so-called in-kind option, he said um, you don't have to worry about that because it's a penalty. Well, when you give somebody an option, you're not penalizing them. And the option is absolutely critical because it means that you do not depend upon future contributions from Treasury in order to be able to pay off what uh, is owed to them. If you can't pay it off at 10%, you can defer indefinitely and cumulatively at 12%, so you never have the death spiral of which the government is going. And if, in fact, the uh, circuit court addresses this issue as it ought to, then that prop gets knocked out of the particular case. And I think the discovery would be much more powerful in favor of the shareholders than it would be if that particular argument is going to be in place. So that's another option, which I think they're likely to take, because 
it's very difficult to get government judges uh, to decide that, look, we're going to unwrap this thing, and we know that you've paid in lots more money than you actually borrowed. We don't know if you actually did the payments back in accordance with this restitution principle. That is, in each period, what you did is you paid off 10% in dividends, and then all the overage would be treated as a reduction of the principle. And then what you did is you paid the interest rates on the smaller amount, and the overage on that further reduces the principle until you get to zero when you have to refund it all. Uh, we don't know how much they're actually going to have to pay back, but it's obviously going to be in the billions of dollars. And you know that means that the shareholder prices are going to start to move. So you get all of those issues out there. Uh, another issue you're going to actually have to worry about, strangely enough, um, is the warrant issue. Um, you know, what this thing was done was to organize, which gave the government the power to exercise a warrant for about a dollar to take 80% of the common stock. That's not going to influence what the preferred shareholders do, but if this thing gets unraveled, it may well be, just as in the AIG case, that all of a sudden the common stock is going to come back if you can pay all the dividends on the preferred and still have some money left over to go back to the commons. And that's not technically in this case, but there's another lawsuit which we're watching very closely to see what happens there. And then the last possibility, which I think is the correct possibility, is if you understand what this case is about, stripping the shareholders of all their rights while leaving them an empty title to a bunch of shares. Right? You have the shares, but you don't have the right to dividends. You don't have the right to control. You don't have the right to liquidation preferences. You just have the right to be bystanders as we take all of your money from you. And that is perfectly apparent on the face of the record, and we're just undoing it. That's the correct result. That is, in my judgment, all of the discovery is a diversion from the central issue, which is if you look at the papers, it's perfectly clear what the government tried to do from the strength of these things. It's actually been able to execute it, and it takes a certain kind of willful blindness, a sort of an emperor doesn't wear any clothes type of situation uh, to do this. And I would hope that that's what the Court of Appeal would do. But the way the case has been teed up thus far, it's not at all clear they're going to put it into the per se takings class, per se breach of fiduciary duty class, but that's the correct way in which it happened. So at this particular point, I think that the worst option uh, for the shareholders is that they're still better off than they were on September 30th, 2014, when Judge Lamberth came down with his decision. Uh, but as we say, the longer this thing goes on, the harder it is to guess what it is that they are going to do, even though it becomes, I think, more likely that a simple affirmation of the decision down below is probably the least probable of the outcomes. Well, Professor Epstein, thank you so much for taking the time to um, you know, speak with us today and, and impart your wisdom out on our audience. And for those of you that uh, have specific questions after you listen to this podcast, feel free to contact us at investorsunite.org. And, and again, thank you very much for being here today, Professor. Well, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me.